I was a virgin until I was 41 years old, but not your stereotypical virgin. After dating more than 100 men and being sexually intimate with over 50 of them, you know, I've had enough foreplay in my life. Unlike most women I've met, now I often just want to cut straight to sex. Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoone. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I am back with a great episode about sex, or I guess the lack thereof, with today's guest, Amanda McCracken. Uh, What you just heard was an outtake from our conversation that I thought was so funny. I decided I was going to open with it. It's not actually in the conversation. Uh, We recorded it after we were talking and I was like, wait, why did we say that earlier? So, um, guess what? You gotta, <laughs> you, now you know what today's conversation is all about. Um, clearly this episode contains adult topics. So if you're listening with the little ones around and you don't want them to know about this stuff, please clear the room now. That's my disclaimer. Um, but what's so fun is that it's really much deeper than the act of sex. That's not really what this episode is about. Um, It's not even, well, it is about the decision about losing her virginity, but really it's about the fact that Amanda spent 41 years developing patterns that made it difficult for her to fully receive love. Now that is a topic worth talking about. So her journey is not so much about having sex as it is about accepting and truly believing that she is worthy of love. Now that is some deep stuff. Um, And now that I've gotten you all riled up, (laughs) I'm going to pause for a minute before we really bring Amanda on. Um, And I'm going to give you a little update about what's going on in my life because this podcast is really about relationships. Today's episode is, is... it has a lot to do with relationships and relationships is a really important word for me. And I feel like I have a relationship with each one of you listening. Many of you email me, please continue doing that. I love hearing from you. Um, and many of you want to know, you know, what the heck is going on? Well, let me just tell you that change is in the air Um, It seems like yesterday, but last August, I started, I started kind of (laughs) sharing some of my difficulties and insecurities and some of the things that were going on in my business, which is just was the center of my universe for 15 years. Um, And then earlier this year, I shared with you that we made the decision to close our doors due to many factors. Um, But the nail on the coffin was literally this pandemic that sort of swept our world and it just made it way too difficult for us to recover from some of the problems that we'd been having. And now that I look back even just with a little distance, I mean, I think... 
I'm going to be honest. I think that we probably could have, I wouldn't say recovered, but we could probably have kind of shrunk down to next to nothing and sort of started over. Um, but it has been 15 years and I have done that. I have, I have gone through the business cycles of grow, hit a wall, have trouble, panic, figure it out, you know, start over, grow again. I've done it a few times and I know in my heart that it's time for me to evolve and to move on. And so what's happening right now, it's like nail biting time, um, is that I'm actually working on an acquisition while we are continuing to sell all our inventory because I'm also a responsible business person and I'm not just going to like put my hands in the air and let the ship totally sink. I am moving forward to close the business down, but at the same time, and I'm trying to do it with like grace and positivity, which is the hardest and weirdest thing when you see people and they're like, how's skirt sports? And you're like, well, I've decided to close the business. And then they're like, um, congratulations. Like no one quite knows what to say. And I don't know what to say either. It's so freaking awkward. But the truth is, I do believe there will be a rebirth and um, there will be a new starting line, both for the business and for myself. So stay tuned. Literally, I believe that within a month, I will have some other kind of information or announcement to make. Whew. So, um, but that also leads me to my personal life which is also sort of in shambles because I don't know what I'm going to do next. Like I have not been in this position for 15 years. In fact, I've never really been in this position. I've never worked for another company. I was a swim coach. Then I was a pro athlete. And then I started my own business. I don't even know if I could work for another company. If you want me to work for you, send me a note and tell me what you think I could do because I really don't even know how to explore um, that possibility. But what has really been sort of tugging at me is the idea of getting my story out there. It's, I've got a lot of angles. There's been a lot of experiences in my life. I'm 48 years old and, um, I think it's time for me to get them out there. And so I truly believe that over the next six months, I will be in the process of writing a book which is really cool because uh, it's something I've never done before. I know it's going to be hard, but also it allows me to put off getting another job. <laughs> I joke about this, but that's actually kind of true. Um, and I just kind of figured that through the process of writing and reflecting and trying to make sense of some of the lessons I've learned, the next thing might might sh might show its face to me. So um, thank you all for your amazing support. I will continue to produce the podcast because I'll be honest, I actually think we've got a book in this podcast. Some Somehow the nuggets are going to have to get uh, published. They just will. So, so maybe that'll be book number two. All right. And speaking of books and authors, our guest today, Amanda McCracken, is not only the 41-year-old virgin. 
she's also an accomplished writer and um, you can tell she's a journalist by trade in the way that she really deeply thinks about each question. And in fact, she threw a few back at me, partly because she's also at the tail end of her first pregnancy at 42. And um, yeah, she's got a lot of questions around that. So... Let's uh, open your minds, open your hearts, and get ready for an awesome conversation. Let's bring Amanda McCracken on the show. Hello there. Hello. How you doing, Amanda? Doing well. We rescheduled this like five times all because of me. (laughs) I can't even believe it. And you're the one who's pregnant. I thought the only thing that is going to keep us from finally doing this interview is literally you're going to be like texting me. No, you shouldn't actually text me on the way in to like having a baby, <laughs> but maybe you having a baby early. Oh my gosh. I I have a feeling that the baby will come early, but we'll see. We'll see. So your due date is when? August 3rd. Oh my gosh. And let's see, if you had the baby now, it's July 10th. Would that be dangerous? I think I'm in the clear from what I understand for the most part. Yes. And, and the reason we're talking in these terms is this is your first baby. And I've only had one. I don't remember. You, you don't remember? Well, I remember having her, but like, I don't remember the timelines on like, you know, is right. three weeks early okay or whatever. Oh my gosh. How crazy. Yeah. No, I've remembered that I had the baby. <laughs> Well, I have been, I have been kind of paranoid about like remembering things and like documenting things. And so if there's anything I've been paranoid about around the pregnancy, besides the normal things, like healthy things you would be paranoid about, I've just thought, I don't know if this is ever going to happen again. I felt really lucky that it did. And so I've just wanted to try to make sure that I document everything, you know, Which is brilliant because like literally I felt like there was not enough information leading up to having the baby. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to produce some kind of content, but then you have the baby and you're like, I don't even, I don't have time to be like producing any content for people who are going through this because I'm onto the next thing. Right. Which is keeping a, a newborn baby alive. Like that's the next goal. Right. Right. Oh my gosh. So, um, I, I think you've been doing a lot of swimming during your lead up here, right? As much as I can. Yeah. With uh, things being closed, but I set my alarm for 10 till eight to like, you know, click that button at 8am to try to get registered for a lane in time. But, oh yeah. I forgot you have to do that now. I, you know, I just have these memories of being this athlete who thought, you know, I'd maintain some kind of fitness throughout pregnancy. And I, of course I knew it wouldn't be the same, but, but by the end, all I could do was sw- like, I would do two workouts a day. One was a 15 minute walk and one was a 15 minute swim. I mean, it's not like you're out there trying to pound out 5,000 yards anymore. Right. I can, I'm still able to pull off a mile right now. And Which is incredible. Good, but- no more flip turns. I've, I've stopped doing those. Oh, yeah. So tell me, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your athletic background because you're not coming into this like, you know, an off the coucher. You're like a pretty, you're, you're a real athlete. You've been doing sports your whole life. Yeah, well, I guess real is all relative here in Boulder a little bit, especially when I was speaking <laughs> with Nicole DeBoom. But, um, okay, yeah, fair. I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I grew up, uh, 
I mean, I grew up with a swimming background and, um, you know, uh, on a team when I was eight years old and then swam through high school and, and ran cross country and track through high school and college and then picked up triathlon. And that's one reason that brought me out to Boulder was um, the triathlon scene and the trails out here. So, and then just then started focusing more on running in my thirties. Um, and then I think I've kind of run a bit of the crazy out of me. So this was like finally, I think a good time to have a baby and not freak out about how it was going to impact my training and my body. Well, I mean, those are totally legit things too. I mean, it's interesting because you're coming to this later in the game on, you know, as far as how old you are, right? It's, Mm -hmm. you're not 30, you're not 20 having a baby. You're in your forties. How old are you? 42 and a half. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. You're going to be great. Um, and I love how they make it seem like, what do they call it when you're, uh, after 35 or something? Advanced maternal age. Yes, that's it. The first time you're going to be labeled advanced age of anything. But I love this idea of running, of running a bit of the, the crazy out of you, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we approach sports, running in particular, in our younger years for a lot of different reasons. Everyone has their own reasons, but a lot of people it's for maintaining, I don't know, your body the way you want it to look and feel, right? Mm-hmm. So was that the case with you? Um, I think, well, definitely there is a part of that. Um, I mean, I got, into, I got into athletics, you know, before I even had, I think, much, and I have an idea of body image, which was probably a good thing. And then, you know, just as got older, that became a, more of a um, – I guess uh, something I was more conscious of, especially as more of my teammates were um, particularly conscious of their body image. So um, especially with long distance runners. So um, yeah, it had an impact, but I think I also just loved, I did it because I loved the endorphins and the social aspect and um, the competitive aspect of it. Um, And it gave me structure to my day, which I don't feel like I have as much anymore. Um, I'll be learning a whole new structure soon, but yeah. Yeah, I get that. I do. And, and I also understand like this sort of fear might not be fear, but just this uncertainty of like, what the heck is getting pregnant going to do to my body? Because it really truly does change it. And you have to let go of, of not wanting it to change, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, were you like, tell me about, from what I can tell actually on your posts and on your social media, you're really embracing your pregnancy. Like this seems like a very joyous time in your life. Is that true? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, despite everybody being like, oh, that must be rough being pregnant during a pandemic. But, um, in some ways, no, because I have more time to reflect on it. And I mean, I haven't, can't say that I haven't had you know, like the other, the other night earlier this week, I just had a little meltdown in bed with my husband crying like, Oh, I'm, I'm worried. I'm just going to, you know, be ugly and fat. And, you know, and I haven't, I haven't had, I had really hadn't had one of those moments yet, which I guess if you wait until you're 36 weeks pregnant and you have one of those, finally, it's not too bad. But, um, uh, you know, I think one thing that after my, when my grandma died in September at a hundred, almost 101. I felt, um, I, 
I had, I'd wanted to get pregnant before, but I had never really, really wanted to. And I think that was her passing that made me really want to be pregnant and create life again. And I think seeing her body, not being able to preserve it back to that topic of preservation and like um, documenting, you know, with documenting the pregnancy, cause it's not going to last. Um, and her body wouldn't last. I think there was something about that that made it, made it easier for me to let go of expectations I had about my own body um, and, and, and embrace the pregnancy in that way. You know, I also feel like there's a bit that comes with just maturity in life, you know, mm-hmm. I and mean, once you're in your forties and you've, you've kind of gone through a lot of crap to get where you are, it's, you're making decisions for a little bigger picture, greater good than just what your body, how your body might respond, you know? True, true. And I I do, I think of you and you're such an incredible writer. I mean, what you put out into the world creates and stirs up so much emotion in people, a lot of times like unexpectedly. Um, And you mentioned your grandma, you wrote a beautiful like tribute to her. It was sort of like a love letter. When I read it, I was like, oh, it just tugged at my heart and I could see. So I've been thinking about you. I've been thinking about this conversation. I've been thinking about how relationships are a really big part of your life and they're very meaningful to you. You don't just touch, you know, a thousand people on the surface. You touch people deep down and your grandma was a really important relationship for you. And not everybody has that kind of relationship with a grandparent. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't quite know what my question is around that, except <laughs> that, I mean, I kind of want to hear a little more of the story about her and you and why that relationship was so strong and so powerful to help make the impact on you that it did, that it's, it was kind of one of the catalysts to bringing another human being into the world was your grandma. Yeah. She has been uh, um, a catalyst in a lot of ways, actually, for my writing, which was a part, uh, in a selfish way, it was kind of a fear of losing her. It was like losing a bit of my muse. She she never really realized that. She would love to have thought that or heard that. But um, I I grew up with her. I mean, she moved into the house when I was eight years old. And... Um, and, you know, it wasn't like a sweet, you know, grandchild, um, grandmother relationship. It was pretty raw and honest. I mean, get from, you know, from the get go, you know, chasing me around fly swatter if I wasn't behaving or something, you know, and, you know, my, and she had a rough relationship with my parents too. And, um, but, but it was real. And I think that's what I appreciated about it. And, um, I was kind of to her, um, I was, I, you know, I really, as we, as I got older, I became her friend and I could have a relationship with her that um, my, my mother couldn't always have. And I had, you know, and then vice versa that she could, she could talk to me in ways that she wouldn't necessarily talk to my mother. So I feel like sometimes when you skip that generation um, it's easier because you can, sometimes you're not so critical. Um, And if that makes sense, like I think sometimes mother daughter relationships they can be critical, um, and you take that that one generation out of the equation, and it's uh, it's a little softer of a relationship. So 
yeah, so she lived with my, you know, my family until she was like 99, actually, and then moved into like a senior living center about about a year away from my, or about a mile away from my parents. Um, so I, you know, when I would go home, I would always see her and I probably went back to Cincinnati a lot more because, um, because of her and to, um, do stuff with her and check in with her. So, um, I would also say probably, um, the, she was also a catalyst for that, the, essay I wrote in the New York Times about my virginity because it, it really wasn't until she had a fall and broke her pelvis that I started writing, like putting that essay together. And it's a really weird combination to think about, I think, how her death triggered me thinking about my virginity, you know, like things that just can't last forever or they can, but should they? So um, interestingly, yeah, she triggered, she triggered both of those essays. Wow. Okay. I mean, we, maybe we just have to like turn the, (laughs) turn the conversation towards the virginity topic because, you know, this, this is a big, this is a really interesting topic, right? Something that you wrote openly about and your experience was so different than pretty much anybody I know because you chose to remain a virgin until you were married in 40, in your forties, right? Well, I wasn't technically married, so oh. but I waited. I waited. I waited. Uh, I Got waited it. until um, I met the man that I am married to now. But yes, um, yes, until I was in a loving and committed relationship. Yes, that's true, and that's a really important line to point out too, because a lot of people have this idea in their head that you need to be married until you cross that line, um, and some people have it never once crossed their mind that that would be important. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I guess my, I think the curiosity here from anybody listening is just this, the question of like, why, how did, how did this sort of happen and evolve? Was this a decision you made early on? Or was this something that through experiences you just started to realize was too important to you? Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's not an easy answer, but, um, you know, I think it started, um, it started as a seed that was planted when I was in high school and um, it, it did start as like a seed planted from more of a, like a religious aspect. Um, and then, and I was a late bloomer and none of my friends were having sex. It wasn't a really big deal. It wasn't something I was really, you know, that curious about, to be honest. And, and I, there was no pressure to either. And, and so, um, and then it grew into something where, a lot of my friends were, were having sex and I still wasn't really into getting into relationships. I was dating here and there, but, um, and I didn't have like huge sex drive either. So it wasn't like I was dying to have sex. So, um, it almost became this thing where they were like, Oh, you haven't, you haven't had sex yet. Oh, don't do it with him. You know, like hold out a little longer, hold out a little longer. And it almost became a little bit empowering actually. And I did have a couple long-term relationships in my 20s. Um, one with a man with whom I did say I was ready to have sex. And he said no. And um, I think that sent me kind of reeling backward, you know, like pull it all back in. Because it took me a while to like get to the point of saying, okay, 
I'm ready. I trust you. I love you. And he was in the military and he was shipping out for Iraq. Um, so he could have been like, yeah, let's go for it. But maybe he may, maybe he was protecting me. Maybe he didn't really think, um, I really meant it. I don't know. But I think that had a big impact on me because then I went on like a dating spree of just dating lots of Peter Pans, which there are a lot of in Boulder and, um, you know, and really hooking up and being quite promiscuous, but not having intercourse. Um, just kind of like still like holding on to that. And I think it just became a streak in some ways. Like a lot of athletes can relate to that. Um, um, or people who, you know, have certain like dietary restrictions too. Well, um, well, that's a whole nother thing, but, um, yeah. So I would say I, there's an important aspect of this that I didn't realize until my like mid thirties. And that was that, um, I realized that, you know, I kept dating really unavailable men, um, emotionally, physically, um, I mean, in all kinds of ways, unavailable. And it was almost like a safety net for me because then I wouldn't have to go back and um, offer that up again, like offer to have sex or want to go there and then get hurt again. So there's a fear, I think, of being left. And um, even though I was blatantly dating men who were leaving me left and right, it felt like at least I would still have my virginity. I would still have something even if I was being left. Um, so it took, it took a while for me to realize that my patterns were basically keeping me in the same, um, same position. And I had to, um, really like start looking for different types of men. And that meant also realizing that I was worthy of different kinds of men, that I was worthy of being loved. And, um, and learn how to receive love, which is really hard. So, so what working on that, this, like, you're right. It is hard. I mean, it's like receiving help, receiving a compliment, receiving love. That's like the greatest thing in the world to receive. Why, why do we, why do we push it away? Um, I, I'm still working on that, but I think there's something, there's actually something that almost became comfortable. It's what I knew. It's what I was familiar with. Um, kind of like any kind of like bad addiction. Maybe, you know, it's not good for you, but it's what's familiar and it, it creates this kind of like, it's safe because it's familiar, even though it's not healthy. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, is there an expectation if you if you open yourself up to receiving love that like it's measured so now you have to give the same exact amount of love back or one person might love someone more or in order to show your love are you showing it by offering things like sex you know and if you don't offer that maybe you can't maybe the person will think you're not loving them enough you know there just seems uh -huh. like there's a lot of dynamics towards why it is hard for us to open up and, and accept that love. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, why it's so hard to accept love? 
Well, yeah. I mean, is it that idea that, you know, that it needs to be this equal give and take and maybe you're not ready to give it? I think there's some of that. Yeah. That, that could be that, that there's fear that you won't be able to match it. Um, and, uh, I think that's what made Dave, the man I'm with different is that he was willing to go there and just, and like, love me before I loved him, I think. And, um, that was, uh, um, something really I hadn't encountered, um, before. So. Well, and I think too, there's this you know, there's love, there's sex, and there's another word that you've, you're writing about, you're writing a book about, which is longing, desire, you know, other cravings. Um, and they all kind of flow in and out of each other, right? Sometimes I think maybe you can mistake one for another. So it can be confusing, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I kept thinking, I can't be in love with this guy. Like, I don't feel anxious. I'm not afraid of him leaving me. This does not feel like what I have attributed to love before. Um, so it felt really uncomfortable, actually. It was much more comf comfortable for me to sit and long for somebody who lived 5,000 miles away um, or somebody who was, you know, wouldn't give me the time of day um, than to sit with somebody who was like present with me and, and wanted to be with me. So, you know, let's help some people here because there are people out there who are developing these patterns like you had developed. They're in the development stage of pushing love away. What can we do? What can you say to them? that will open their eyes so that they don't go decades living, you know, in this world where that's not necessarily a healthy way to have relationships. Oh yeah. Great question. Some, some of it I think is actually going through the process. Like it's almost like I had to beat myself up enough until I, hurt bad enough that I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to go back and do that to myself again. Um, but I think, I mean, to be honest, um, I saw a therapist who was really good at helping me see these patterns and, and still, um, still like almost, it was almost embarrassing to go back to her and be like, I did, you know, I, I, I messed up again. I messed up again. I, you know, I'm, you know, chasing after this guy again and flying off to XYZ, even though I know there's no hope and wasting my time. But she, you know, held the space for me. And I think whether it's a therapist or a friend that um, can help you see the patterns and to try to understand um, how the longing isn't going to get you anywhere. And it can be addictive, but it's not it's uh it's a dead end um and then she had me write in my journal actually she had me write in my journal um every day i probably did it for almost a year um i am 
ready for and worthy of, I think this is it, if I remember correctly, I'm ready for and worthy of a deeply intimate relationship. And, you know, I didn't believe it for the longest time, but I kept writing it down. And I think just as, you know, in athletics, we too, we learn, you know, to write down affirmations too. Um, and I think it was helpful. That piece was really helpful. Oh, I love that. In fact, it, it, this whole conversation is making me think like, what questions could we ask ourselves to see if we think we're, you know, going down a positive path or if we're starting to roll down the slippery slope? You know, are there mm-hmm. some questions you could ask yourself? Right. Um, I think I also found, I mean, the question might be, do you, do you find yourself getting a, a high off of a loss or a tragedy or the, just the search or the chase. And I so, so got a high off of the chase. It was almost like the endurance event, endurance athlete in me, you know, just go, go, go. And um, it didn't work that way in relationships. And I felt like in some ways, you know, as this, young female athlete. I was really empowered by my parents and they're like, you can do whatever you want. You know, you just go after it and it doesn't work. It didn't transfer in relationships. It took me a long time to figure that out. Um, but I also found that I felt like I was getting a high off of loss. And I mean, I felt sad. I mean, I, I had those emotions of crying and sadness and everything, but there was a high that I actually got off of that. There's actually something called complicated grief that I've been doing a little research on um, where people actually kind of get addicted to these, um, the feelings they have of remembering, particularly somebody who has died, Um, but it could be related to romantic relationships that have died. Um, And I know that sounds, you know, it's neurological and, complicated, but I think there's something to be said for that too. Like what, where are you getting a high in your life and is that really healthy and how do you change those patterns? Yeah. I mean, this is, there's a lot of, um, sort of a addictive behavior tied up in all of this, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you go back to even the idea of sort of holding on, I don't know if that's the phrase you use, but holding on to your virginity, is that what you how you would phrase that? Oh, all kinds of ways that I know people poo-poo, but <laughs> saving, holding on to, keeping, I don't know, however, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about that and I can totally understand how it's sort of a line in the sand. Like here you are in a relationship, you've chased, you've gotten to a certain point and then you you kind of like withhold, I don't know if that's the right word either, but you're just like, I'm not going to go to that next step. And so you know that at some point there may be a crack in the relationship. So you're just like building up to this point and then you're like, nope, I'm going to hold on to this thing. So I'm not going to give you all of myself. Mm-hmm. And knowing that you're going to get this kind of like weird rush and high, not weird, but you know, kind of this <laughs> rush and high from the whole process of that. And that you're going to get to do it again because then you get to go on another chase, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there was, I would say there's a, there, there was a bit of a high in feeling like I had, I hadn't, um, you know, I would say earlier on there was that feeling of a high of like I had, um, 
oh, I had almost proven it to myself again. Like, see, he left me. And so I still have, I'm still holding on to something. And it almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy though, you know, cause I kept getting into the same relationships, but eventually, I mean, I felt guilty. I was, I was, you know, I was doing the same thing to myself, but I still, I did feel guilty to these guys, <laughs> you know, like, and I'm, there are plenty of women out there to be like, you should never feel guilty for having sex or withholding sex, you know, but I did, I felt guilty. Like I was, I was hurting their feelings and I was being selfish. Um, so one thing back with the longing that was interesting that I recently came across some um, science that's talking about how we, that actually it's kind of like we're almost wired for longing and um, that dopamine, which we, you know, known as the pleasure chem like hormone chemical um, is released actually when we're thinking about something new and anticipate in, in anticipation. And it's actually, it's not when we get the thing that we want, it's wanting the thing we want where we get the dopamine. And then when we actually get it, then we crave it again. So it creates that circuit in our head. And I think I was doing that with, um, with men too. That's, I mean, I understand that completely. I get it. I'm sure you were. I mean, we all want that feeling all the time if we can. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, and this is so, this is kind of crazy too, because there's also a male female dynamic here. I mean, there's expectations in our society about what, what we should be doing. And there's probably a lot of men out there. I don't know how many, but there, are, there have got to be men out there who also don't feel the need to have sex in relationships or are waiting for whatever reason they've chosen and mm -hmm. possibly are going through the same thing, but we don't hear from them a lot. You know, and I go, I go back to stereotypes of like, you know, for guys, it's a conquest, right? Go out there and have a lot of sex. And for women, if you do that, you know, you're slutty or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it just seems so unfair. I don't know. And like by, by withholding or staying out of it, you just, you just didn't deal with any, you didn't have to deal with any of that. Yeah, I, I, I did have some men that reached out to me regarding what, what I had written and, you know, in terms of um, sharing their own stories and agreement that they, they too were waiting for some reason or they, they could relate in some reason. But by far, a lot more women reached out. But, you know, contrary to what most people would think, I, I rarely had anybody pressure me, like men pressure me to have sex. Um, so... I think that comes as a surprise to most people. Um, and I also would like fully admit that I think I, I uh, came out, I guess, lucky in some ways because I think a lot of women can relate to this that I, and the way that I would drink a lot to try to almost take the control out of, like almost so that I wouldn't have control and somebody would take the control from me because I was tired of being in control so much of myself. And so I put myself in risky situations, drinking way too much, went home with men. I barely knew, I mean, ridiculous things. And I got, and I fortunately, 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 you know, um, didn't, wasn't, wasn't raped, but, um, I know that happens a lot, you know, happens quite a bit. So, um, that's a piece of my story too, that I, that hasn't really been talked a whole lot about.
Which piece do you think, um, is it the alcohol part? Oh, I think, yeah, the alcohol part of, um, I think a lot of women can relate to that of drinking and to kind of like let go and then things, you know, sometimes happen. You don't really totally intend to have happen, but. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure how much you know about my background, but I am 12 years sober myself and um, went through many, many different experiences in my life that included alcohol that most likely would have turned out differently if alcohol wasn't involved. (laughs) And for sure, there's a release there. But the difference for me is that I blacked out a lot. And so, you know, there's some definite question marks behind some of the experiences I had and what actually happened. And in your case, you know what happened and didn't happen, it sounds like. Right. I I have never blacked out. So, um, but um, yes, but I do, I did, I have heard you speak about it before. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, there's the idea that we we use other sort of tools or crutches or addictions or whatever to put our, to let ourselves, you know, gain freedom and, you know, go free, get loose, whatever it is. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting because you're not necessarily giving up control, but you are in a sense by taking that first sip, you've decided that you're going to let the night or the day or whatever take you where it's going to. And it might be a different place than it would if you were sober talking about alcohol. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, one of the other things about you is that you talk very openly about this and you obviously are a writer and you've been published and So I wondered like, okay, so you're dating someone. Does this come up really early? Like, hey, I just want you to know I'm a virgin, so don't expect me to be having sex on the first night. Or do they usually know that about you because they've Googled you ahead of time or what? Like, how does it come up and when? Um, It is occasionally guys had like Googled me and knew before. Um, But um, I would say it usually it usually didn't come up until we were, you know, like intimate and like hot and heavy, not just like kissing on the front step or on the couch or something like that, like clothes coming off. And usually I'd kind of throw up that, that little sign, like, Hey, don't want you to get your hopes too high and uh, say that. And um, sometimes if I felt sometimes actually when I felt like I was on a date with somebody, it was not going to go anywhere. And it was like, I would just, I would just bring up the conversation just to see what, how they would respond to it because I didn't care. I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. So did you ever have people who surprised you with their responses? Huh? Um, I, I mean, some of the, some of the best ones were the ones that were just like, you're kidding me. Right. Like, like, they thought they'd laugh or they just thought it was a total joke. Um, and then they'd realize it wasn't and they were just kind of speechless. So, um, but I can't think of any like remarkable responses. Um, I can think of a couple things that were said to me later that were just really, 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 really rude. Um, but, uh, like what? <laughs> <laughs> this is what we want to know. <laughs> um, 
Um, there's this one guy who said something like he, it, it uh, the relationship had, I, I don't think it was pretty clear. I don't think, I think we weren't going to see each other again. And he said something like, um, if we, um, maybe if we do it in the butt, um, you, he'll, I can't remember if he said, you'll still be a virgin or you won't be a virgin anymore. Win, win. This was texted to me and I oh said God. something like lose. I just responded like lose, lose. Um, so <laughs> so that's, lose, yeah, lose. that was a nice one. Oh my God. So I think one of the big questions is, do you think you can have a fully intimate relationship that does not involve sex and like a complete fulfilling, loving amazing relationship that doesn't take it to that very final level? Um, I mean, I think the relationship I had with Dave before we did have sex was um, very, very much still like the one we have now, to be honest. I mean, sex just added like a bit of freedom and something else fun to do. I mean, <laughs> maybe that sounds ridiculous. I mean, but um, I think that's why I went there with him because I felt um, I felt like it was the relationship. It, the, the whole thing was there, regardless of whether we were having intercourse or not. Um, and I, I think there are people still that don't have sex for one reason or another. Um, I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a paralysis or maybe they're like, 80 years old, 85 years old, and they're not having sex and they still have a really rich, fulfilling relationship. So, you know, I personally feel like I, I'm sure everybody goes through the droughts, you know, like someone gets sick, you have a oral surgery, you know, like stuff happens, mm -hmm. like uh, sicknesses go through whole families. Like it can take months sometimes. Right. Um, but I do have feel a baby. like, what was that? Or they have, have a, baby. a baby or you're pregnant. Yeah. Although that is supposed to be something that's going to help you actually have your baby. So right. when this, it gets closer. Yeah. This, yeah, this month. Yeah. Yeah. You can enjoy that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do feel like it softens things in a relationship and it, it reconnects even for a very short time. You know, it's, mm -hmm. if you go too long and you really, you know, notice the little signs you can see that you avoid touching each other like as you walk by or whatever it's like just this little extra thing that brings you physically closer but I think it also connects you emotionally in a slightly different way yeah I have found that with you know because I mean I haven't been having sex for very long so it's still kind of new to me um and I have found that it has been a way to connect you know, um, and when, and, and regardless of orgasm or anything like that, it's just a way of connecting and being together, um, that you can't really get, you can't totally really get any other way. Um, so that is something, that's something I've been learning just in like a year because it's only been about a year that I've been having sex. So well, and imagine had you gone your whole life um, without crossing this final frontier, you know, maybe, maybe you would just wouldn't have ever found that. 
found, oh, the connection part. Yeah, that final extra deep, deep layer. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely possible. Yeah, so. and that is, so, okay, so here's, um, we're going to keep moving on. So you, you met Dave, and did you know right away that he was going to be your partner in your life? No, not at all. In fact, we had no, we had met each other and known of each other for probably like 12 years. Um, cause we were both in like the running circles here. And, um, so we, but we were in different parts of our lives. He was married and I would have never been interested in him because he was just a really nice guy. And so I wasn't really interested in uh, it's a little bit of stretch. That's not very nice to some guys I dated, but for the most part, I was, you know, not interested in, in guys who were completely fully available to me. Um, and so, and then we reconnected about two, two years ago this month, um, on the Rio rooftop, having some drinks and, um, and then it was, there's just a little bit of a spark that was kind of like curiosity actually. Um, and then as my friend Megan told me that she's like, I think this will be a slow burn. So which how she described it. And that is exactly what it was. So, um, and I think we were both kind of patient with each other coming. He was coming off divorce and, um, and I was still trying to, um, be in a healthy relationship, learn to be in a healthy relationship. So yeah, it grew. The spark grew. I love that idea of the slow burn. I mm-hmm. mean, and it's so different than what you'd been chasing, which was the, the immediate spark and the, you know, totally. the passion and then the turn away and the, oh my gosh. Totally. Yeah. So it didn't, in that way, it was like, this, this is not what I expected. So um, yeah. And it only could have happened with somebody like him who was probably not in a place to be, um, aggressively moving forward in a relationship. So he was part of your, you know, sort of the maybe final stage of your self growth in that area. Yeah. I'm still growing, <laughs> I think for sure in that area, but yeah, I do think like it was a good, it was a good fit. So Okay. So you, you guys got together eventually or very, as soon as you knew you were going to be with him and he was the guy you had sex. When did, did your baby come from that initial, you know, first moment or did, did, did you get pregnant shortly after? Well, we dated for almost a, a full year, about 10 months. Cause our first, we met in July, but we didn't actually start dating until September. And then we, um, then didn't have sex until the end of June last year. And then, um, and then just kind of like, we're like, well, if it happens, it happens. If, if, and if, if we get pregnant, we get pregnant. And it just felt like kind of like this whirlwind of like, I don't, I don't have time to lose. So, which is, you know, contrary to anybody who probably thought, you know, I was waiting for the, um, the perfect situation because of religious reasons, but I wouldn't say that my summer really reflected that. Um, and, 
and then we um, had the wedding ceremony at my grandma's bedside three days before she died in September. And then we had another ceremony in October, which was the one she was supposed to hopefully be at. We, we had planned that for both grandmas and his mother because we didn't know if they'd make it out here to Colorado this summer um, for the big ceremony, which has been postponed three times now because of COVID and everything. So, um, and then I got pregnant in like the beginning of November. Um, so it was, it, it does, it does feel like wham, bam, but it wasn't exactly wham, bam. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, and, but you did make the decision that you were at a place in your life where you had found a person who you could see a future with and you felt open to having a child, which is huge because previously you weren't there. Yeah. I actually just had a little bit of this conversation with Dave last night because we were talking about timelines and like, sometimes for me, I'm like, well, why don't you just do it? You know, why, why can't you just make up your mind to do X, Y, Z, you know? And he's like, I got to do it on my timeline, you know, da, 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 and take us. I'm like, okay, okay. I realized I got a butt out. And then, and then I said, well, it's amazing that you like just proposed like that, you know, we're so sure only like, you, you know, he had decided in May, I guess, which was nine months after dating. And then, and then he pulled the trigger and he, he asked and then that, and, um, and that I said, yes. And then also we both kind of like went forward with getting pregnant, like so quickly. And I, I was saying that last time, like, isn't that amazing? Like we just like jumped on that timeline without like overthinking it so much. And I guess it was because he said something like, well, when I'm absolutely hundred percent sure of something, I just go with it. So I think there was, I think that's what was, um, he, I think he's a little better at that. I still overthink things sometimes, but, um, the baby thing was pretty, was pretty clear once when we did start trying. So when do you know that you're overthinking? When do I know that I'm overthinking? Yeah. Like how can you, there's a lot of people out there who relate to that and they're like, God, I want to just stop that. I want to stop being that way. I want to be able to you know, know more clearly sooner, stop overthinking it. How do we do that? Oh, I mean, you're a writer. Maybe this is impossible. Maybe, maybe you wrote it out, you know, maybe you write (laughs) things out, but. Yeah, that's a great question. I still, I think when I'm realized that I'm just, this is something my parents would say to me, they'd be like, you were wasting a lot of emotional energy on this. And it often would be them that would, would kind of call me out on it or, or good friends, I think too. And, um, I had my friend, my, again, my friend, Megan, that I referenced, she would, sometimes she would say, well, which she would give me two choices. She, which, which one feels really lighter to you right now? And I'd be like, Oh, clearly that one feels lighter. You know, if I'm making a decision on something, but, um, it is hard to turn the wheels off in my head for sure. Sometimes, um, but sometimes, yeah, writing it out or talking it out helps. Yeah, no, I agree. I really do. I think what do having you do? those little, uh, having those tools helps for sure. What yeah. do you do to stop overthinking or do you overthink? Um, I, I, I go in phases. I mean, there are some times when I see things really clearly and I know that if I start thinking too hard, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. 
Mm-hmm. But I also watch my husband overthink and overanalyze a lot of things. <laughs> like sometimes I'm like, can we just get a blender? Do we have to research for two months? Like, but you know, everybody has their own process. And that's one thing you said in the beginning that I, I thought was really cool that you were respecting his process. And we can try and want to control and help other people in our lives find their happiness and their peace. But the end of the day, we have to respect their process. Doesn't mean that that people don't want to change their process, though. This is why I asked, you know, how do you get those wheels to stop turning? And but I'll be honest, it once when I go out and do a workout, things clear up for me. But it, yeah. it can't be like um, a fitness class. It has to be some kind of outdoor walk, and you know, where your brain can actually free up. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. That definitely brings a lot more clarity for sure. Yeah. Well, and as an athlete, I think you definitely know. Um, I was also thinking about you're about to have this baby and your baby's going to know all these things about you because you're a published writer. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you thought about your relationship, coming back to relationships, the kind of relationship you want to have between mother and child? Uh, for sure. I've thought about, um, because I can be, I think I've learned, it kind of got passed down from my grandmother to my mother, to me, um, this kind of perfecting in, in critiquing, you know, the daughter and then it kind of reverses. And now like my, my, my grandma did it to my mom, my mom did it to me. I'm doing it back to my mom and my mom did it to my grandma. She was getting older. You know, it looks like it looks like criticism, but it's more, you know, for my mom, it was more about keeping my grandma safe or, um, you know, maybe during COVID it's the same thing with me speaking to my mom or my mom speaking to me about safety precautions, but it comes across as criticism or trying to perfect. And so, and then I think we, we do it to ourselves because we're that like, I think we do it to our, our um, children because we see them as this extension of ourselves and we want them to be the best, the best possible version that we think they could be. Um, And uh, so I'm, I'm aware of that and trying to, that is something I definitely want to like curtail a little bit or, you know, not, not do to my child as much as possible sort of this idea of letting go and letting them be who they are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's, that is such a important thing and it's such a fine line, you know, until they're old enough to make their own like rational decisions. It's really hard. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm relating right now, even with an eight year old, but in the beginning they can't make any decisions. You're just like, you're just, they are an extension of you truly like half the time they will literally be physically an extension of you if you're breastfeeding um and then as they grow up it's it's just a little bit more independent every day every year you know and uh yeah that's a hard it's definitely a hard line but you're right and i love that you're so conscious of it you're using your own experiences to to look at like both the positive things and the things you don't want history to repeat. Yeah. Trying. How do you, how did you, um, as a mom, like 
allow your daughter to, in certain situations to, you know, become her herself without you trying to perfect her in a certain way. Can you think of any examples? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really, there's a lot of control in the beginning too, because you're trying, you're really, like you said, with your mom and your grandma, you're trying to keep your child safe. Mm-hmm. So that's how I feel. At least it's, we're moving out of that. But what's also interesting, if you only have one child, all you will know is being a parent of a single, right? And that's all I know. But people who have more than one child, I will, would watch them with like a two-year-old. And I swear, I felt like the two-year-old was going to like fall to their death every second on some playground thing. And they're totally comfortable with it because they've already been there. Mm-hmm. But for me, with my one child, you know, we constantly feel like, oh my gosh, she's going to get hurt. Oh my gosh, you're going to fall. Don't do that. You might fall, you know? And I work hard on trying not, not to be controlling, um, but at the same time trying to create an environment of safety, you know? It's mm-hmm. definitely a fine line. I struggle with it a lot. And what's also interesting is that your parenting differences will become pretty obvious pretty soon. Mm. You know? Between, and you mean mother and father. Yeah. And, you know, instead of really looking at how do we parent similarly, you often latch on to the things you do differently and it can create friction and tension. And you're like, God, why does he have to be so strict with her about this? You know, and he's probably thinking, why can't she say no once in a while? You know, (laughs) so... Mm -hmm. That that's a whole new dynamic to the relationship that I think because you're older and more mature, you've had a lot of life experiences, um, you may be in a, a pretty good position because you and Dave know how to communicate with each other. It's people who are young and they're still sort of growing up together in their early 20s or whatever and having babies and some of those skills haven't even been fully formed. But yeah, it's, it's hard. Definitely. Mm-hmm. It's both like completely fulfilling and joyous and exhausting and, and demoralizing at times. But you know, you made this decision later in your life and I can see that there's true happiness and joy in your decision. And I love it. Yeah. And I, I am glad that we have that communication that we do. Like it's, it's remarkable. I think that counts for so, so, so much. And I would have never had that in a lot of other relationships that I was seeking and longing. Never, ever. So, Well, and I think that's something to think about too with your child is that the number one thing you have with your kid is communication. You know, and what do you want them to hear and believe about themselves? And if you can keep that communication between you and your child open, I mean, we're, we're going to be way ahead of our gener- the generation before us and before them because they didn't have the kind of communication that we do with our kids, mm-hmm. which is so beautiful. I know. I absolutely love it. So what is driving you these days? Like you are at the tail end of your pregnancy. You've been doing freelance writing for... I mean, many, many years, you're in a wonderful relationship. Like, is life just great or do you have some big goals ahead? Um, life does seem to be pretty sweet right now. I mean, I do have a lot of fears about what this 
how having a child is going to change this relatively stu- still new relationship, you know, and um, and then also how how having, but but at the same time, I feel excited to be moving forward. Actually, having a child with Dave because it's um, it feels like we're definitely in a partnership, and um, I have faith that we'll work out. It'll it'll be good, but you know, fear about also just how it'll impact my ability to write. Cause with freelance writing, it kind of comes and like, you kind of have to build up a wave and keep writing it and keep writing, keep writing. And then writing R I D I N G and writing. And, and then it, when you suddenly stop, it takes a while to build the momentum back up and I'm going to be definitely hitting a wall in some ways and stopping. But at the same time, kind of coming into a whole new phase of my life that, um, you know, will be really rich for, for writing purposes too. And I think I'll see lots of connections that I've never seen before. So I am excited about that. And, um, I guess what's, yeah, go ahead. Can I ask about one of those connections? So we hit on this a little bit, but we didn't really dig in, which is how your body changes, um, especially from an athlete's mindset during pregnancy. Do you feel more connected to your body through this process? Or is this part of something that you would want to document for people is sort of the body's journey? Um, I would, yeah, I would say I'm more in tune with my body now. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about, I'm excited and scared to death of the labor and delivery process and, but interested in actually feeling like viscerally feeling all of that, the, all the highs and lows. And, um, I remember actually like after my grandma's death uh, for a while, I almost mourned the loss of the feeling of feeling so much, um, like I, I, I did the, my biggest fear was feeling numb and I missed, I missed the intensity of those emotions actually. And I felt like there was, there are a lot of similarities I am anticipating. And from what I've heard from people too, between birth and death too. Um, so I'm excited to have that. I'm, I'm excited and feel really lucky to have that opportunity ahead to experience and, um, really feel into that all the, all the good and bad feelings. You know, I can remember and relate back to that fear and anxiety too, about the actual labor and delivery, because as an athlete, that's the event, right? Mm -hmm. This is like the training and then you're going to have your next thing of training, you know, like your recovery, but that's an event you can actually sort of plan for. But the really funny thing is that, you know, you're, probably creating some sort of birth plan or hopes, right? And then you tell that to anybody who's had a baby and they just laugh and they're like, ha, you don't even need a plan. It's just going to happen. <laughs> and you're like, seriously, I can't like go into it with zero plan. I mean, I've right. got to have something, like at least what I hope would happen, right? I mean, have right. you had that response as well? Oh, totally. Yeah. Like I've, I have written out, you know, filled out the little charts and plans and so forth. And everybody's like, well, it's just going to go out the window. So, you know, it's good to have, it's good to have it. But, um, and I have, 
I have been, I do feel like I'm winging, winging it a little bit, but um, I guess anybody who does this really has to wing it because that you just don't know what, what to expect. And I, 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 you know, I hope it doesn't sound bad to continue to go back to my grandma's death, but there was a part of me that was like, why didn't I prepare for this better? You know, why didn't, why didn't I look up what congestive heart failure is to understand what is going to happen to her body and how is she going to really die? Probably. And, um, you know, and why didn't, why didn't I, um, do more therapy to anticipate her death? Because of course she was almost 101, she was going to die. But I just, um, you know, part of me feels like I avoided it because I just didn't want to accept that it was, it was going to happen. Um, but part of me, and, you know, a couple friends who've gone through, um, um, the loss of, you know, people they're really close to told me, you know, you can't, you can never plan. And, you know, and thinking about people that will die, um, that I'm close to in the future, you know, I, I thought, well, okay, now I'm going to really be ready for it. But, um, you, I guess, you know, it's probably similar with birth. You just can never really know what to expect and no matter what kind of plan you have. So. Yeah, no, it's very true. I mean, I do understand that idea though of like, what else can I do to research? I was a big time researcher. I literally would like interview people. I'd be like, hey, I need to hear your birth story. Tell me everything, <laughs> you know, because so I could know every which way it could possibly go. And then yours will go a different way or maybe some similarities, but it's going to be unique too. And, um, and I don't think it's weird to go back to your grandma again and again, because it was so formative for you. You learned a lot. You know, I was even thinking about if longevity, if there are some genetic factors in, in the longevity game, then you've got it. Your grandma was a hundred plus. Um, why do you think she lived so long as, as it stands? Um, I think she did because she had a lot of community around her. Um, and she, you know, as much of a struggle of a relationship she had with my parents living in the house for 30 years with them. Um, I think she did benefit. Like think that, I think that did serve her. Um, even if it did create stresses, but she had, she had a lot of friends and she nurtured those friendships. Um, and that, that in turn nurtured her. And I think that's one, one big reason that she lived so long. She, and she was tough. I mean, yeah, she had gone through, she'd had breast cancer. She had several car accidents. She'd been in like nervous breakdown twice, kidney removed. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. So it wasn't like, you know, she'd gone through life unscarred, but she just was, I think maybe just genetically, she just bounced back too. But she was, she had told me uh, in September when she first got pneumonia too, she was like, I'm not leaving before she told my mom, she goes, I'm not leaving before the wedding. Like she was like, you know, very certain about that. So we made sure that that happened. Yeah, that and you know what? There's there is a link in the show notes to your story about the wedding at your grandma's bedside, and it is just very touching. So I encourage everybody listening to go over and read that. Um, speaking of community, and you've mentioned this, having a baby during times of coronavirus is unique. I mean, are there what are they doing differently right now? Um, 
so Dave is the only one that can be allowed in the um, room with me. We have to, as of right now, we have to go to the emergency room to check in um, as opposed to like going in the normal hospital way. Um, if I'm induced, I found out earlier this week that I have to get a COVID test first. Um, and as opposed to if I have, or if I have a C-section, a scheduled C-section, then I also have to have a COVID test. Uh, no doulas, no nitrous oxide, isn't that? I think that's what they call that stuff. But they, it's kind of like laughing gas. It's sometimes used as like a, you know, to avoid pain without having to get an epidural because of the, it breathes because of the way that it um, expels the air, I think from you as being potentially a risk to other people. Interesting. So those are the biggies that I know of. Well, I will say everyone's going to give you their advice, right? But my one thing that looking back, I kind of wished I did is I, I wanted to have like a non-drug, you know, vaginal birth, the whole thing and like really feel it and experience it. But my baby came two weeks late. And mm -hmm. so they induced me to get her going. And I still had, was, I was still going to try to do the non-drug route, but because when you get induced, it's so fast and it's so painful so fast and there's no buildup at all. Um, I kind of wish I just did the drugs right away. <laughs> it would have been more enjoyable. That's so my one thought. <laughs> you didn't, did you get an epidural? I ended up with IV drugs, an epidural, and a C-section. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it all went that way after trying to not have any of it. So, um, but you know, you'll, you'll make your decisions. I think the one cool thing about doing a birth plan is that you can hit points where you really aren't in your right mind. So your partner will know and your, you know, medical team will know what your original intentions were because when they ask you at certain times during <laughs> the experience, you may not really know even what you're saying. Which is hilarious. Right. That's what I have heard. That's why, yes. yeah, Dave and I are sitting together taking some online birth classes right now, actually. So, oh gosh, I love it. That's so what, funny. One interesting thing, actually, that I haven't brought up that is that kind of is in the back of my head with the birth is that my um, my mom, when she gave birth to me, had a stroke, like had a full on burst of blood vessel in her brain, um, and pulled. They pulled me out, and she had two grand mal seizures. So, and then I basically went home with my other grandma um, for three weeks while she stayed in the hospital. So, you know, and that's the birth story that I grew up hearing and, um, you know, having to like, it's also been a good ch challenge to think about um, how that, that doesn't have to be my story. And um, she would always, she would always say, oh, when I would say, why did you burst your blood vessel in your brain? She says, well, you couldn't make up your mind then you couldn't make it, can't make it up now. And, you know, you kept going in and out. And so I kind of took that on as like, oh, it was my fault, you know, that that happened. Um, but then she told me it was because she was not breathing correctly. Um, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Cause we all, my grandma, my mom, my, me, we all hold our breath when we're stressed. So, um, that's something I'll definitely be conscious of in the delivery room is really trying to focus on breathing. Well, I'll tell you right now, I just took a nice deep breath and I'm sure everybody <laughs> else did too. <laughs> yeah, well, you can't really we, hear the word breath without 
breathing. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of like Kegel. Kegel and breathing. Those are the two <laughs> things you do when people say them. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know what you're doing right now. Me too. <laughs> A little squeezing. <laughs> yeah, that's good for you. Um, so, you know, we've been rocking along for quite some time. Is there, before we wrap it up with a final question, is there anything else that you think is important for people to understand about your journey or your message? Um, I think that the one thing that I didn't bring up is the, the topic of identity and how um, so much of my story that I've written about related to relationships and virginity and sex and relationships was just, um, you know, that sometimes you kind of get, you, you kind of, you embrace a certain identity for so long that it almost becomes hard to even change that. And, um, and so that was, that was something I had to work on and acknowledge that I, I could be someone other than single Amanda McCracken chasing after people who would never love her. That's a really important point. I mean, we tie our identities up in a whole lot of things. Mm -hmm. And um, at some point you got to let that go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is like mourning a little bit. You mourn the loss, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. if it's an unhealthy identity you've created. Totally. I can relate to that for sure. Well, this has been awesome. Um, definitely, we're all going to be checking out your new book that's going to come out at some point here. You, you mentioned earlier, I'm not sure, I think prior to our interview that you're working on your, um, your proposal. Yep. It's uh, in editing stages right now with my agent, hopefully. So hopefully she'll be finding a good home for it this fall. And what's the title going to be? Uh, right now, it's How Longing Became My Lover. Ah, very catchy. I love it. Um, okay, cool. Well, we'll be all following you to make sure we know when that comes out. Sounds Thank awesome. you. Thanks for this opportunity to talk. Oh, for sure. So I'm going to now pose to you the final question I ask everybody who comes on the show. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would yours be? Hmm. Can you repeat it one more time? The stall tactic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice so that they can run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Um, I would say learn to receive love and see yourself as worthy of it. I love that. It's perfect. Perfect way to end it right now when many of us are feeling like we, we can't physically get the love we need. We need to make sure we're open. Mm -hmm. You're awesome. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for your time today. And uh, let me know when you, when your water breaks, I'll be <laughs> cheering you on. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Nicole. All right. I am back. What a great conversation with Amanda. 
I love her final nugget. We are all worthy of love. If you are holding back, call Amanda. (laughs) Reach out to Amanda. We're going to help crack you open and um, allow you to open up and receive that love that you are worthy of. I loved the conversation. It was fun and deep and had a lot of layers. And I was actually kind of surprised about um, her relationship with her grandma being such a pivotal relationship in her life in so many ways. And to be honest, I think Amanda was too. So here's, here's the thing. I want you to get over and follow her. Follow her at Amanda J. McCracken on social media and check out her website, amandajmccracken.com. If you follow her, if you stay in touch, she will update you on the book that she is working on. Um, I'm definitely going to pick it up when it's out. Of course, she's got something big coming up in between. Um, She's about to go have a baby. She may actually be having a baby as we speak. I have no idea. As we talked about, she's in the clear. (laughs) So when uh, her time comes, she might be off the grid for a while. But her book is, uh, at this point, going to be called How Longing Became My Lover. Isn't that cool? I absolutely love it. And I love supporting women. I love supporting entrepreneurs. Um, and I love to support people who are open and willing to share the things about themselves that may be uncomfortable or difficult to talk about in order to help other people. Because that's what it's all about, my friends. All right, everyone, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.